Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl in the Gum, the podcast. Happy Wednesday. It's been, it feels like without top stories, it's just, it's been a minute. I know. It's so weird. I was literally, like my day yesterday almost just felt like a Sunday. But I also I say this, I think certain days just feel so not fluid. I don't even know how to describe it. But like Sunday, for example, I spend most of Sunday writing the newsletter. So Sunday feels like a Monday to me. And then mm-hmm. Monday feels like a Tuesday. Like, I'm just, like, so shifted. And so yeah. I feel like by the time we get to Friday, I'm, like, Friday feels like my Saturday. And I feel like it ends up being, like, more of a half-day vibe because it's just, it's shifted. It's shifted. We're creative schedulers. What can I say? Love it. You love the um, scheduling autonomy that comes here, girl on the go. Yeah. Although I will say, I did get a little distracted yesterday because I went on a walk. And I went to, there's this, like, museum like up in Vermont, there's this museum over in Massachusetts that's like this beautiful institute and they have these huge trails and like fields behind it and like all these miles of trails, like amazing. And through the field, they have cows in the spring and the cows just wander through the pastures, like through the, like the paths go through the pastures. So you got to walk with the cows. I love that. And I've been dying to like every time I've been up to like go and walk with the cows. I'm like, oh my God, like I need this moment. <laughs> every and time so- there's a hike with cows, I'm like, I'm there. Literally, they're so cute. And then I had steak for dinner. So <laughs> I felt really guilty about that. Yeah. But my dad promised me that it was not the same type of cow, technically. So that was the rationale in the kitchen yeah. household. But nonetheless, I was like walking through the fields. And obviously, we know me, I'm going to go for the content too. So I was like Snapchatting my little cows, getting my little content. And then one started kind of like rushing towards me and I was like, it's time to move. And I was like making that internal like pun to myself, like dad joke, but also like <laughs> when I'm internally running for my life. But the cow, I think, just wanted to say hi. And was there little ones yeah. around? There were babies. That's probably why the moms can get a little territorial. Which was fair. And I just have I never. love cows. They're so cute. They're sweet. I just, I've never really done, my farm animal experience kind of like starts and ends with when I was little and started eating my hair because I had like white blonde hair as a kid and they literally mm. thought I was, hey. Hey. So I, you know, it's a classic doppelganger for me. It is what it is. But nonetheless, they were cute and I highly recommend a cow walk. It's just. No, I love like. There's like a decent amount of hikes and exposure to cows here as well. And it's just always brings joy. And then, yeah, you like go to dinner and you're like, oh, that burger looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Wait, sorry, uh, this is not a vegan My podcast. mom is like, she's pescatarian, so she's always like giving me eyes whenever I we eat certain meats. God about that. I know. I'm like, come on, give me a break. Well, we have a really good episode today. I'm really, sorry, really what, good. What was that word? Really? With emphasis? Oh, it sounded, it sounded like wheelie. And I was like... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that... On Mother's Day, we watched home videos and I forgot about my many a speech pediments when I was mm. younger. Couldn't say my R's. So maybe Me I was either. just being brought back. Restaurants, restaurants, because I just wanted to avoid <laughs> the R. I like was people could not understand me except for my sister. And my sister would be like, she said this and like would translate everything. And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually iconic i know I, um, that. but anyways really good episode today and before we get into it we want to like highlight some action items because we are talking to chris brown who's the president of brady and so we get into gun violence solutions gun reform all the things and we want to highlight before we get into it some of their incredible action items so we're going to do that first. Samantha, what do we have really? on the docket? So first and foremost, and we will obviously be linking this in the show notes, is they have a whole action page. So there are three at the top top of the list. One is a classic like send, you know, put your info in and send note to your representatives about banning assault weapons. So obviously a classic, but something that shouldn't be classic because we need to get it done. So please go and do that. I also made a TikTok about this in a side note, is when you see these these templates, like these pre-written letters, and you go and send them, you can also use that template, like that letter, as what you say when you call your representatives. Like, you don't need to reinvent the wheel and create like a whole nother script for calling your rep. Like, these totally work. So just keep that in mind is like you can send and then also pull up that letter again and give your rep a call and like sort of double down. I think that's a great strategy dare I say. Then another action item that involves safe storage is up there as well. Want to get safe storage up and running and also your universal background checks. So there's two, I, I was about to call them save and sends, which is a series that we have in our newsletter. And that is not what it's called. Like I want there to be a fun and I'll come up with it at some point, but phrase for like the plug your info in and go kind of scenario but regardless we will have these linked so think universal background checks and we talk a lot about that in this particular episode so if you're like wait doesn't that exist or does it not exist we get into the details safe storage and how that will reduce gun deaths and gun violence significantly it's wild again we get into that and then assault weapons ban and if you want more of like an assault weapons ban deep dive i highly recommend our episode with congressman garamendi because that is really the focus of just that one this episode which we're getting into momentarily we promise oh we promise is really a deep dive into universal background checks safe storage and other gun violence prevention legislation policy ideas and also just the culture around guns in this country sort of what those facets really look like so nonetheless Action items, go to the assessing link in bio. Go to the yeah. description of this episode. Get her done. Yeah. 
No, I also just love this episode because again, that like cultural piece that Sam talked about is so important. And this is definitely an episode like I will be sharing with my conservative family members. Hi guys, because I just think it's such a common sense conversation about gun violence and how preventable a majority of these deaths are. So I just love that. And I think it, it brings like everyone to the table, whether you're a gun owner or whether you're very anti-gun, I think it's an episode for everyone and it's definitely very shareable. So if you have people in your life that are interested in this or that you also want to kind of hear some of these common sense solutions, definitely send it along and tell them to look into Brady and what they do because it's, I really feel like a gun reform org and these initiatives are like really for everyone and they bring people together rather than like making this a political debate which it shouldn't be like these are people's lives it shouldn't be a political issue at this point like it it affects everybody so they really approach this issue in that way which i love totally wait no it just reminded me of though and i don't know how it took me this long to boop in my head about this is this weekend when i saw a person in the market doing open carry Mm. totally forgot to mention that i was like strolling along in vt and they like I didn't realize that, like, I knew that Vermont's gun laws were pretty lax, but I didn't realize that open carry was a thing. And I'm, like, grabbing water, putting it in the car, and I'm, like, face-to-face with, like, a gun on this dude's holster. Yeah. And I was, like, whoa. And just, like, I'm not used to that from being in the city. Just have never, of all my years, also, too, of all my years back and forth between, or in Vermont, I've never seen that. And I was, like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And I can a thousand percent tell you it did not make me feel safer. Just an FYI. It made me feel like on eggshells the entire time I was in the market. So, yeah, because you like don't know that guy. You don't know if no. he is a responsible, kind, good uh, gun owner. Like he could be. How reactionary is this guy? Exactly. You know? and aggressive. Or who knows? Like, so it is it is scary. And I, I've never, I don't think, at least with in my site, I'm sure I've been around people who have been open carrying. I just haven't noticed. But yeah. No, I well, I think I've definitely been around be concealed carry, I'm sure. Like just being like when you're in a rural area, I think for sure. But just the fact that it was like hanging out there, I was like, whoa. Anyways, stories aside though, tangents aside, because you know, we could go all day. See, this is what happens when we don't have top stories. We didn't get to ramble and now we're just going sideways, upside down. It's fine. But nonetheless, we'll get into it. Like we said, this episode is with Chris Brown. She's president of Brady. I also, when I was introducing her, like when we get into this episode itself, I almost thought I said in my head, like Chris Brady, because Brown and Brady. And I was like, oh, no, did I just, I just use the wrong name. Again, I did like such a double take in my head. Chris Brown at Brady. It's, it all flows, honestly. It really does. And we love her. We love this episode. Like we said, lots about gun violence prevention, interesting policy ideas, nonetheless. So without further ado, here's Chris. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days tailored specifically to the political space. 
Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. So head to girlinthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of pros custom hair care and skin care is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pros covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing pre-mixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash girlandgov. We are so excited to have Chris Brown, who's the president of Brady on the podcast today. We are Beyond excited to get into an unfortunately dark topic, but with so many facts that we need to wrap our minds around. So to get things started, for those that don't know Brady, can you walk us through what the organization does and all that jazz? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for having me. Really appreciate being here and talking a little bit about what I view as now vocation. 
being the head of Brady United Against Gun Violence. It's the oldest and we'd like to say boldest gun violence prevention organization in America. It was founded by Jim and Sarah Brady. Jim Brady served as President Ronald Reagan's press secretary. He was shot in the line of duty. And he and Sarah spent the rest of their lives working very hard for the enactment of common sense gun legislation. They passed after six years and seven votes in Congress, the Brady background check system that's been in effect for more than 25 years and stopped more than 4 million sales of guns to prohibited purchasers. They also passed our nation's assault weapons ban. Unfortunately, at the last minute, a provision was added to that ban that caused it to expire after 10 years. We continue to work at Brady for the advancement of laws like an assault weapons ban, the expansion of the Brady law, extreme risk protection laws, a lot of that I know we'll get into. But we also recognize that gun violence is a public health epidemic. So we focus on working in Congress and the state houses, working in the courts, better enforcing the laws and changing social norms around guns in this country and really bringing gun owners into the conversation as part of the change we need to see. Mm-hmm. Love that. Well, for a little bit of background about you too, can you kind of give us the run through of how you ended up at Brady? Like what did kind of that career journey look like for you to end up in this position? Sure. Yes. So I graduated from college. I was an English major and therefore unemployed. No, just teasing. <laughs> English majors are the best guys. They I, Look, major. I agree. Communications is key and hundred English major, perfect. Served me very well as it turns out. But I volunteered for a congressional campaign that was written up in Congressional Quarterly as one of the most expensive at that time. This was in 1990s. And for those of you who know that tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions are, are spent on some congressional races. It was the most expensive in 1990 because just over a million dollars was spent. So it was a long time ago. Yeah. My my candidate won. I worked on Capitol Hill for eight years when Jim and Sarah helped pass the Brady Law. I became a lawyer. I went to law school at night, was, practiced for 16 years, lived overseas with my family. I have daughters who are 19 and 21. And when we moved back to the United States, I really wanted to help tackle the issue of gun violence because it is an epidemic in this country. And it helps you see it better when you're outside of the United States. And you can understand that no person coming to America for the first time or even the second considers that visit without seriously having concerns that they will get shot in America. Wow. And that that's to me is not freedom's safest place. It's not consistent with the America I was taught in civics we should live in. And it's not in an America that I can take pride in, quite frankly. So that's why I committed to helping where I can and am very proud to be a part of this storied organization. Yeah, I actually just saw a video of someone talking about that, how there's travel warnings, warning tourists coming here that there is a potential of being a part of just like this carnage of gun violence in the U.S. And that's crazy to think about, and especially a perspective that I think most people aren't aware of, given being here, you know, that external point of view is really interesting. Right. That's right. But that that is how the rest of the world sees us. And it's not a surprise because we now lose more children to gun violence than any other cause of death, just for an example. So 
it's not a, I don't think it's being unpatriotic to point that out. I think it's the heart of patriotism to want America to be safer and better than it is today. Mm -hmm. But not agree more. Well, speaking about the future and trying to figure out a way forward, we want to talk about the Brady Plan. Can you give us insight as to what this is and what its design is meant to do? Yes, thank you. Brady wants to free America from gun violence. Those are five words, but they really say it all, in part because we recognize that America is in the grips of what is a public health epidemic, and we want to liberate ourselves from that. And the the way to do that is in three fundamental areas where Brady is engaged and actively leading the movement, the gun violence prevention movement, which is now stronger than ever in this country, for change. The first is policy. Of course, Jim and Sarah set national policy, but state policy is very important too. So we're active at the federal level and the state level to shape gun violence prevention policies like expanded Brady background checks, assault weapons bans, extreme risk laws, and others. We also are involved in enforcement of the law. So we can pass these laws like the Brady law But unless we are resourced to help the agencies like the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms that regulates gun dealers or like state police that will investigate how dealers are selling guns in their states to help them see how to enforce the law, then the law is not going to be nearly as strong or as effective as it should be. So we have teams of experts at Brady who assist agencies and enforcement officials in really ensuring that the laws we pass are implemented in an effective, fair, and non-discriminatory manner. That's very important to us. And the final area is social norm change. Policy has a role, enforcement has a role, but we have more guns than people in America today. And unless we are communicating to gun owners about the dangers of guns, that are unsecured in the home, we can't end the epidemic of gun violence. And part of the reason why is we're losing 46,000 people on average right now to gun violence in the year. 65% of those are suicides. If you have a loaded and unsecured gun in the home, you have a significantly increased likelihood that you will experience suicide. So N Family Fire is our designated driver, secondhand smoke, public interest campaign directed at gun owners with one simple message. If you want to save lives in your home, if you want to end family fire, you need to safely store that firearm. So all three of those activities, policy, enforcement, and social norm change are areas Brady leads with cutting cutting edge programs, but also data-driven programs. All of these things that I've explained We actually collect data on to make sure we're doing the right things, we're holding ourselves accountable, and over time that we feel that we will be saving lives. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I have so many questions about just pretty much every every pillar here, all three pillars. And I know we're going to get into depth in order, but I do want to ask one question before we do that, and that is about the social norms and changing that. And I'm curious what the roadblocks you guys find are with gun owners? Like what is in a conversation with a gun owner about safely securing weapons? Like what is the feedback or 
the commentary. Pushback. Yeah, the pushback. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Great question. Well, to in order to launch our campaign, we launched it in 2018 and we have over 3.2 billion views of the campaign now. And every time we launch a new creative for this campaign, we have an, a, a hundred different, 109 now different pieces of creative collateral. We do focus groups with gun owners and, and people we call considerers, people who are considering the purchase of a gun. The feedback we've gotten is super interesting, and I'll put it into three buckets. The first is that many gun owners feel judged about the decision to bring a gun into the home. They feel that in our society today, saying that they are gun owners is synonymous in some people's minds with saying they're stupid. And so it's horrific that gun owners feel this way, because ultimately that is a personal decision that you can make. There may be various reasons for it. And so we have to demystify this idea or debunk this idea that choosing to have a gun is a completely irrational act and that this is pitting gun owners versus non-gun owners. Gun owners want to be part of the solution too. They don't want gun violence to happen. They don't want guns to be in the wrong hands. And so finding a way to bridge that gap and to have conversations about the role of guns without judgment of the decision to have a gun, but in sharing information and sharing conversations of, if you're choosing to have a gun, here is why safe storage is so important. Now, once you get to that point, the other piece of pushback that we sometimes get is, well, if I don't have my gun right at my bedside, or in some cases, we've talked to some people in their living room next to the door, loaded and unsecured, then what will I do if someone breaks into my home? Now, that is a much easier conversation to have with people than it would have been maybe a decade ago because of the prevalence of gun safes that are biometric that are now at very reasonable price points where you just put your finger on the safe and it is instantly open. And the reality that we focus on with folks is the opportunity for you to safely store your firearm is one that can not only save your own life, it can save the life of your kids. Eight kids a day are being killed or injured with guns in their own home. And that is the real risk that you're introducing when you bring a gun into your home. So we don't we don't push back on the idea that you may, in fact, want a gun for safety. The point of N Family Fire is anyone who's choosing a gun or a firearm in their home for safety is doing it because they love their family. Part of loving your family is also protecting them from unintentional injury or death with that gun, as well as suicide. Because if you have a loaded and unsecured gun, five times more likely that household is to experience a suicide. Once people get those facts, it's amazing the conversations that can happen and the number of people we're finding who go out instantly and buy gun safes. That's exactly what we want to see happen. Mm -hmm. No, that's so interesting and definitely a big, big piece of the conversation. I think everyone, when thinking about gun reform, instantly goes to policy, but that like social aspect is, is so important. And I'm glad you guys are covering that. But 
We want to get into our I have a stupid question segment. It's a long (laughs) one. We have a lot of explaining to do as far as different terms and different solutions. So we want to get into that with you and starting with kind of this background checks bucket. It's it's a big one. And the first question we have is regarding the Brady Bill, which you've mentioned. And so we kind of want to first get an idea of what is the Brady Bill? Is it still in place? Can you kind of give us that run through? Sure. So the Brady Bill, as I mentioned, it was passed into law in 1993, went into effect in 1994. Basically, what that does is set up a system uh, that actually was in effect in 1968, in uh, the Gun Control Act of 1968, but it had no enforcement mechanism. So if you go in under the Brady Law, named for Jim and Sarah Brady, the authors, you know, our organization's namesake, If you go in to purchase a gun anywhere in the United States from a federally licensed firearms dealer, that firearms dealer by law is required to run a background check, sometimes called the Brady background check. That background check queries an FBI database for information about whether or not you're a prohibited purchaser. The categories of prohibited purchasers were borrowed in the Brady Law that passed in 1993 from the 1968 Gun Control Act. That's how long these categories have been in effect. So if you're a convicted felon, if you're a convicted domestic abuser, if you have been institutionalized for a certain period of time, usually 72 hours or more, these are different categories that are enshrined in law, then the FBI will provide a report back almost instantly in virtually every case, something like 97% of background checks come back within seconds of the query from the gun dealer. And if you are a prohibited purchaser, that gun dealer by law must deny the purchase of that gun to you. They cannot sell it to you. Yes, it's still in place. I would just say to forecast some of your other questions, it was passed more than 25 years ago. I'll age myself by saying, well before this guy Mm. waving an iPhone, well before the internet, well before gun shows being big business. Today, they are big business. And so the gaps that we have in the law mainly come from internet sales and gun show sales that are not technically covered if they're private sellers. Those sellers are not technically covered by the federal Brady law. And that's what we want to fix. Okay, double doubling down on that. What really is a gun show? Because we hear this a lot that there's this loophole. People can go to gun shows and just purchase willy nilly and go on with their day. But what is the difference really between a gun show and purchasing there and going to, I'm guessing, is a dealer licensed? Yes, that's the difference. So think about it this way. For every gun dealer in this country, and I have to give a shout out to President Biden for helping to try to refine what it is to be in the business of selling guns such that you're required to get a license, right? And before Biden really tried to specify this, it was a little bit loose in terms of whether you were in the business of selling guns or not. And that looseness allowed basically smaller entities that may have been, frankly, they were supposed to be subject to a license, but they didn't get licenses to sell guns with no background check at all. And how did they do that? 
before in the 90s, there wouldn't have been an opportunity to do that because there were a handful of gun shows across the country. Those are just like big tents. You see them all, all over Virginia, where I live, many other states where they've proliferated, where you will literally have some kind, sometimes hundreds of vendors selling firearms. Now, some of them may be federally licensed, and then they have to do background checks, but they could be four stalls down from an entity that says it's a smaller seller that is not licensed. And so if you were someone who is a prohibited purchaser, which stall would you go to? Right. Right. And that is the disparity in the law. What we know from the data and the research we've done is because of the internet sales, where there can be sales in the internet in half of states where they haven't closed this loophole, and you could go online and look for a firearm, and some of the advertisements even say, cash only, no questions asked, meaning no background check and purchase that firearm and pick it up within a very short distance of your home if you're in a state that hasn't enhanced the Brady background check system. So that's how the loophole works. One in five guns sold today is sold through those loopholes, either at a gun show or over the internet. And tragedy ensues all too often because a lot of these people who are exploiting the loopholes are people who should never have guns. Yeah, that is. I mean, I am a little confused though than how gun shows are even allowed because that's technically like buying them in person. Like, how did that loophole even come to be? Like, if you have to be licensed to sell, but then how, when did you these gun be, shows pop up? I'm so confused. You have to be licensed to sell over a certain number, and the statute was unclear. So the way that they would skirt okay. around this is they would say, well, I'm not selling that number and they're not recording all of them. So some of this is happening in a highly unregulated environment. The entity that's responsible across the country for regulating most of these are the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, which has been chronically underfunded and sometimes state police. So the reason we want a federal Brady law in place that covers gun shows and internet sales is We want one rule consistent across the states for what it means to be a licensed firearm seller. And we don't think it should make any difference whether you're selling at gun shows or you're selling over the internet or you have a brick or mortar store. The only thing that would not be subject to a Brady background check are interfamilial transfers. If you and I are related and I'm passing the gun down to you. Mm -hmm. Outside of that... We think every gun sale should be subject to a background check, and that would actually provide a universal background check. Yeah. yeah. Just an well, idea. Perfect Yeah, And maybe, <laughs> oh, well, not to kill her segue, but I have like a, a side question because classic. Yeah. And would there be any use for banning, like, okay, well, let me back this up. How do I want to phrase this? So you know how if you're going to put on like a state fair, for example, you have to get permission to like rent the federal land or the state land for something or from the town. Could like towns pass ordinances to block land, like public land for being used for gun shows? Wow, it's so interesting you ask that question. Mm -hmm. 
of course, like everything else in the firearms world, it becomes endlessly complicated. And I know you have a lot of questions. So let me try to be succinct in my answer. Yes and no. If you live in a state like many states where the legislature has said about firearms regulation, which is unique because they haven't said it about many things, but often like in Virginia, they say it about firearms regulation, which is localities have no authority to pass any ordinance to restrict gun sales. You'd be shocked the number of states that say that. And therefore you as a locality would have no ability to do that. If you live in a state where you're allowed to regulate or legislate in that area, yes, you can do that. And in fact, for example, some of our great chapter leaders in California have totally shut down gun shows in their jurisdictions on that basis. But it it can be tough, if not impossible, if you live in a state where the legislature has said that you have no authority to act on behalf of your constituents in this area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, more reason why sweeping federal legislation, please. Let's just yes. cut all that work out of the equation. <laughs> But getting back to our our segue, what is a universal background check? You mentioned it. Can you kind of define what that is? I think it's another kind of buzzword that we hear so much. Yes, exactly. So basically, it's background checks for every gun sale. It is closing the loophole that I described that exists with respect to gun shows and the internet and ensuring that any person who's actually selling a firearm to a third party must undertake a background check before that sale is completed. Got it. Okay. I feel like that's like a very good spot for us to just, or just a clear definition. And I think that one gets muddied a lot. I am curious though, in this litany of things, what a waiting period is, because that's another one. We hear a ton. Some people have waiting periods, some people don't. Like what is the application of it? Just curious there. Yes. Well, some states, before the Brady Law was enacted, the 1968 Gun Control Act did have a waiting period to attempt to, you know, put put some time and it sometimes it was three days or five days between when the sale happened and when the sale was completed. That waiting period exists under the law and was enshrined in the Brady Law. Right now, it's three days where if a background check has not come back, right? 97%, as I said, are instantaneous, meaning they come back and the dealer knows whether someone's a prohibited purchaser right away. But a fraction of those background checks don't come back right away. So what is a dealer to do? Well, they can't sell the gun in that instance. They need to wait until the background check comes back. Right now under law, that waiting period is 72 hours. However, under federal law until recently, if the background check still had not come back, the sale would proceed anyway. That's called the default proceed rule. Some states have changed that, like California has a 10-day waiting period because they know that basically 100% of all background checks will come back in that time period. We at Brady advocate for that and have advocated for extending the waiting period because all of the data shows us that if a background check is taking longer than a few seconds to come back, often there is a real issue with that record such that the person, the the FBI needs more time to research. And we again have seen 
the real problem with shorter waiting periods in case like the Charleston shooting at the church where that individual who obtained that weapon and shot parishioners and the reverend there in cold blood who was a white supremacist after praying with them, I mean, it was just horrific, obtained his weapon despite the fact that the background check hadn't come back after three days. That's horrific and we need to fix that. 100%. One thing that I have always had questions around with background checks and just like this being a major solution, obviously that needs to be put forth. Like I've always been curious because behind a lot of the pushback on solutions, it's kind of like big gun manufacturers and gun lobbyists and such. I'm curious, like what putting background checks in place does to gun sales that like make them push back on it, if that makes sense. Like I'm just curious if it does it slash it so much like it just kind of seems crazy that there would be pushback on something like this. It is crazy. It's deeply upsetting. And no, I mean, almost every gun dealer that I ever interact with is more than happy to engage in background checks. The way to think about it is this way. The gun, the National Rifle Association and the other industry group called the National Shooting Sports Foundation or NSSF, they are basically representing the industry. And if you're in an industry and you're just say, let's say you're selling widgets, not something capable of taking another person's life, what you want as a strategy is as many barriers to transactions to be removed as possible. And so the NRA really looked at background checks as a barrier to the transaction because their entire motive is to sell as many guns as possible to as many people as quickly as possible. That's why Mm -hmm. even during COVID, they got President Trump at the time to pass a regulation declaring the sale of guns a national emergency, like getting vaccinated because they were terrified that gun sales would slump. During the pandemic, gun sales increased by 64%, by 64%. So that's, for for all of your listeners, the way to think about it is that way. It it explains everything. And Mm -hmm. it may get people upset that that's the explanation, but that truly is the explanation. They fought Jim and Sarah Every step of the way, I'm pointing to something I have in my office with Sarah Brady saying, help me fight the National Rifle Association because they were trying to quash the background check system that has now stopped more than 4 million sales of guns. So we've been fighting them and their campaign to distort the reality of of what we do significantly because this isn't anti-gun. This is anti-gun violence. Right, right. I have so many like questions on this whole side of things too, which how do you go after the NRA, these big, you know, players is, are there policy solutions that can be done in that way? Regulations? Like how does that, what does that look like? Because obviously all of these solutions, safe storage background checks are incredible. We need them, but is there some way to kind of, I don't know, infiltrate this, this big industry and regulate them in a way that can actually solve this this even more broadly. 
It's a great question. When I, when I say Brady's strategy is policy, really what we're trying to do is ensure better regulation of the industry. Enforcement is enforcement of the law in a meaningful way across the board. One of the biggest barriers to us doing that effectively against the industry is what's called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, or PLACA, big mouthful, for a <laughs> bill that Congress passed that purports to give absolute immunity from the gun to the gun industry from any lawsuit at all against them. That is the biggest barrier we currently face. Congress passed that law in response to Brady's litigation <laughs> representing victims of gun violence. We fight tooth and nail. You will hear President Biden say again and again and again, we need to repeal PLACA. And Brady litigates in the courts and has poked a lot of holes in PLACA. But really, that's one of the most important things. The other we can't do directly as much, but it's very important and it's having a lot of success because as much as we have weakened the NRA, their own avarice has weakened them more than anything else. And the reality that they're not representing the interests of everyday gun owners who strongly support these policies and poll after poll. The reality is that the New York Attorney General, Tish James, has done more to really open the curtain, throw sunshine and disinfectant on top of the NRA. And that's been very important. They're a nonprofit. They, they are not paying taxes. Okay. Yes. And it's, it's fine if they were being true to their foundations, which is about hunter safety and things like safe storage. That was the essence of why they were founded. They've strayed a long way from that. So Tish James, the attorney general, filed a 190-page complaint and is seeking to remove the nonprofit status of the NRA. The NRA is spending, as far as I know, about one to $2 million a month defending itself. They tried to declare bankruptcy to get wow. that lawsuit thrown out. They were unsuccessful in doing that. The bankruptcy court threw out their bankruptcy filing. And together, these various actions, I think, along with the, their failure to ever say anything other than the way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, right? And more guns make us safer. The reality of America being the only industrialized country where kids are dying of gun violence as the number one killer, I think belies all of that. So I think the NRA is actually very much on the defensive, but I'd love to see it change from within because I think the mm -hmm. biggest threat to civilized, responsible gun ownership exists with the current leadership of the National Rifle Association. Yeah. Oh, man. So yeah. many thoughts. Ooh, but yeah. it's good to know, too, that like all of that is happening, those lawsuits. I feel like some of that isn't honestly covered much right. in the news and everything. And so to know that there are people poking holes in kind of like the bigger monster that is the NRA, along with, you know, implementing some of these solutions that we're talking about today is good to know, because I feel like that's something Sam and I always talk about, like mass tragedy after mass tragedy. Like, how do we kind of cut through some of this bullshit and like just get to the root of the problem. Yeah. And yes. it's good to know that there are people and those lawyers out there doing that work because that's something I always wonder about. Absolutely. It makes me feel great too. 
So there are mm-hmm. a lot of different moving pieces and a lot of people of goodwill and very important public servants making an issue, making a difference here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of moving parts, we do want to talk about safe storage. Yes. And you guys have a campaign called the End Family Fire Campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I, I hearken to this in your introduct in response to your introductory question about what Brady focuses on which is Congress, courts, communities, or policy enforcement, social norm change, and family fire is really in the social norm change bucket. And what what it is, is our version of designated driver or secondhand smoke, which were just ad campaigns. I mean, everyone knows those terms now, but they were just invented by ad agencies, something just remarkable to think about. But they changed all of our behavior, not just me, who was born after those terms were invented, but my daughters and their daughters and so on. And so it's incredible to think about the power of advertising to change behavior. And that's really what this is all about. This is a campaign that is putting a name, Family Fire, to the death or injury of a loved one with an unsecured firearm in the home. We have creative that's all over the country, that's TV ads, that's billboards, that's radio, that's print, that's digital, that is directed to gun-owning households, just reminding them of why safe storage can combat family fire. And that is suicide. It is the eight kids a day who are killed or injured with guns in the home. And it's the 75% of school shooters who get their guns from a home where that firearm is unsecured. And that's why we know it's so important, because if everyone engaged in safe storage in this country who had a firearm tomorrow, we would cut gun deaths in half overnight. Wow. That's crazy. Well, what to, can you kind of paint the picture so people know, like, what does safe storage even look like? What what does yeah. storage like typically look like too? And now, you know, there's new technology as well. Can you kind of paint that picture of how things have changed in the safe storage realm? Yes, Absolutely. So safe storage means having your firearm, whether that's a long gun, a handgun, or something in between, unloaded, locked in a safe of some kind. There are all kinds of safes, combination safes, safes that are biometric, safes with a lock, a lot of different kinds of technology out there, and a proliferation of technology now using biometrics, which make it super easy to open that safe. No issue with it. And ammunition separate and separately stored and separately locked. Now, all of that is very important because the campaign is intended to greatly reduce gun death and injury from the kinds of causes that come from inadequate storage. And that is about 26,000 people a year who are completing a suicide with a loaded unsecured firearm in the home. That means the eight kids a day who are unintentionally injured or killed. And that means the 75% of school shooters. So we have to, as part of this, really embed information, which you can find at nfamilyfire.org about the kinds of safes that are out there, which are a dizzying array, how you can store them, where you might keep the safes. So really, this is providing as much information as we can to gun owners and people considering buying a firearm about why and how safe storage can be used not to limit your ability to have a gun, but to store it safely so that no one within your home or who's visiting is harmed. 
Totally. I have another, yet again, another question. Why <laughs> is, why does the NRA and any other lobbying group push against safe storage? Because to me, like I understand the background checks in terms of the context of a business. You want to get, like you said, as many guns sold as quickly as possible and you want to keep sort of that hamster wheel going. But I don't see how having safe storage would prevent any sales. And I also don't see how that couldn't be lucrative for them as well to sell like these storage containers. New product line. Right. (laughs) And it's like, or like, and you could do all the different marketing, like get your free, like safe storage blocker when you buy XYZ, like, like any other product. And so I just don't really understand that. Is there anything that you've seen or heard or just have like an insight on as to that pushback? I, I don't know. I, I've asked to meet with Wayne LaPierre, who ironically, you know, he does head up the National Rifle Association and has for more than two decades. He's 15 minutes away down the street and he doesn't want to sit down with me. I have all the same thoughts you do. I think the way to understand it is like so much else that's very hard to understand unless you think about this as simply and completely profit motive that is underwritten by selling firearms as a zero risk proposition. We know from Tish James's lawsuit against the NRA and the discovery that's been undertaken that a huge portion of their budget was spent on a marketing company called Ackerman McQueen that actually LaPierre had very close personal ties to. Not a surprise. That's the story of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were kickbacks happening there is what Tish James alleges. And there's a lot of evidence to support the idea that that's true. But what what LaPierre asked Ackerman McQueen to do to sell more guns was to sell the idea that more guns make us safer. That's a lie. If that were true, we'd be the safest country in the world because we have more guns than people. And nothing stops a good guy like a gun with a bad guy with a gun. Now, if you're, nothing stops a bad guy with a gun, like a good guy with a gun, sorry. If you are in the business of selling that kind of, frankly, dystopian universe, talking about safe storage belies that firearms are actually potentially dangerous. And so I think it's that it hurts. They can't square how to continue marketing more guns in everyone's hands anywhere with safe storage. And they won't, even though it would save lives, even though their members would so benefit from them talking about this in a robust way. They don't want to. They want to double. They don't want to move back from the really basically dystopian universe that they've doubled down on to sell as many firearms as they possibly can. That makes a load of sense, though. The inability to message those things together. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, now I'm seeing the English major scenario and the communication, all those things coming together. But that makes (laughs) a load of sense. Pun not intended. But we we do want to (laughs) also talk about suicide and guns. And I know... Yeah. It's been integrated into our conversation, but we're seeing a huge increase of suicides with guns. We've seen the risk of it as well. It goes up 300% for having a gun home. Why is that? And what is so connected with suicide and guns in particular? Yeah. It's a really hard thing, right? Especially 
post COVID, you know, typically suicides have always been a large component of gun death and injury in this country. It's typically been white men between the ages of 45 and 65. When I say typically like 80% or so of those completing a suicide up until recently had been in sort of that demographic, it's shifting a lot. And part of that is we have more guns in people's homes post-COVID. I told you about the 64% increase. So we're seeing increases in teens, increases in minority populations that heretofore had not been attempting suicide with a firearm. It's alarming. It's, it's really alarming to see it. And the reason why it is such a problem is because for the most part, if you talk, and I'm not an expert by any means on suicide, but we work with many, many, many organizations who are, and the person who leads our end family fire program comes to us from that space. And the reality is that most people who attempt suicide do so with very little planning leading up to it. It's typically a very short period of time. They might think about it episodically. They might have ideation, but they don't act on it and move forward with it with a whole lot, typically some outliers here with, with careful thought out plans. And so the presence of a loaded firearm that is easy to access can mean all the difference between a suicide attempt and completion of a suicide. What do I mean by that? If you attempt suicide with a firearm, 90% of the time you will complete it. Nine out of 10 times, the person who is attempting suicide with a firearm will die. That's compared to all other methods and means of suicide where the completion rate is 3%, 3% or less. And the additional research that we've done is if you attempt suicide, and survive. Very few people who attempt with firearms do survive for the reasons I've said. But if you attempt suicide and you survive, for the most part, 90% of the time, you will go on to die from natural consequences, not because you attempted suicide again. So this campaign is really focused on debunking two myths. One is that if someone who's intent on completing a suicide will do so, it just doesn't matter. Means don't matter. They do. And that's why we have a record number of people who are dying from suicide in this country, dying with a firearm. The second is that barriers to access don't matter. They do. They matter hugely. The best evidence we have is that safe storage, if you're choosing to keep a firearm in your home, Safe storage is the number one best way. And that means locked, unloaded, ammunition separate because everything that you have to do mm -hmm. as an individual to put those things together is reminding you, wait a minute, what and putting space and time, what am I doing? Putting space and time between those acts can be life-saving. And that's why this campaign is so important given the suicide rate that we're seeing across this country. Right. No, that's such an important picture to paint. I'm also curious if there are any other solutions, uh, gun reform wise, that help with the suicide side of things. Yes. Yes. One of the biggest, the other thing I have to say is obviously, if you are at risk, 
if you have someone at risk in your home, the safest type of storage is remote storage. Remove the risk altogether. That's why within the military, there's this concept of the buddy hold, meaning you have a buddy, you provide them a firearm when you are designating yourself at risk, because we also have an epidemic of suicide among military veterans, about 20 a day who are ending their lives predominantly with guns. The, the, so we're trying to move forward with policy that allows those kinds of actions to be easier, more access to remote storage and these kinds of things so that you don't have to jump through a whole lot of hoops to try and reduce risk if you're at risk or someone in your household is. The other thing is extreme risk protection laws. Those can be incredibly helpful. Those are the laws that allow the removal of a firearm from someone who is at risk subject to an ex parte hearing. So you have to provide some kind of information that the person has said, I'm at risk to myself or I'm at risk to others. About 19 states now or exactly 19 states have passed those laws. Connecticut has the oldest standing one. They passed one after Sandy Hook. Yale did a study or Duke did a study. I can't remember which institution on that law. And it found a big correlation between uh, effective implementation of that extreme risk law and reduction in suicide risk. Mm-hmm. So that's really, really important. And I, I right. want to say that probably also means reduction in mass shooting risk because a lot of the evidence that's coming out about those who've actually looked at mass shooters note that very frequently what they are seeking is suicide by cop. They're just taking many other people down. It's horrific. with them. And so finding a way to get mental health treatment and others to those who are subject to extreme risk protection laws is a big priority for Brady. Yeah. Wait, question on severe risk. How does that work? How does one be on the severe risk list? Right. So, So every state is different. It's a creature of state law, these extreme risk protection laws, but more or less there's, there's just a little variant. So in Connecticut, I think it's, you know, police, family members, maybe educators that could seek an extreme risk protection law. And the way you do it is you see, let's just give a hypothetical. Someone has said, I feel uh, I'm very upset with my teacher and I'm going to commit gun violence at my school and has words that effect that they've said it's in writing. You would be able to get an expedited court hearing uh, with that kind of information and law enforcement would remove firearms from that individual for a period in most states of 30 days, although often those orders can be extended. During the interim of the extreme risk protection order, because the court issues the order, in some states, and Connecticut is best in class in this, individuals subject to the order will be connected with state-funded mental health treatment for whatever issues may be happening or may not be, right? (laughs) Those things have to be assessed. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that passed Congress that Joe Biden signed into law last year provides unprecedented funding for states across this country to train all of those on the front lines of seeing risk related to individuals on how to seek an extreme risk protection law and a lot more funding for mental health treatment to encourage states to make those kinds of connections that Connecticut has 
that when Connecticut's law was studied indicated, yeah, we've seen a reduction in, in harm, especially from suicide as a result of this law. Interesting. Especially I feel like when that law passed, so many of us were like, yay, like progress, but also felt like it was missing a lot. Obviously, an assault yeah. weapons ban, I think, is really at the top of all of our minds. So it's been really, I don't even know what the right word is. I don't want to say lackluster, but I, because it's obviously doing something and very important work, but it was one of those things where it's like, it's hard to really visualize or understand the gravity yeah. of what it could do. And I think even on the daily, like, I still really grapple with that of trying to understand, like, what does that actually mean in application? And I think sometimes like when we have funding models for things, obviously it's important. We have to fund these resources, otherwise they're useless. But yes. seeing funding go towards something and then seeing mass shootings every day and you're like, where, where does this bridge finally connect? I think can be, I know it's frustrating for us, but I, I think it's one of those things that gets really tricky. Um, and I think too, we're always talking about, okay, Biden 2024, what's the messaging going to be and all of that. And trying to message around that in particular is really tricky when, for example, you're still seeing all these mass shootings. So, yeah. That's why we have to think about gun violence as having different root causes. What's driving homicide is different from what's driving suicide is different often from what's driving mass shootings. And even though assault weapons, Brady has, since I joined, been very active and vocal on wanting an assault weapons ban. Jim and Sarah are the reason we had one to begin with, a federal one from 1994 to 2004, and it saved a lot of lives, reduced the use of those sorts of weapons and mass shootings, shockingly, right? Of course it did significantly. But I will say mass shootings represent two to three percent of all gun deaths. I hate, I hate that so many of my friends I've made in this movement because they lost their children in mass shootings. So I'm the first to say, yes, let's do that. But I will say it's not enough. And I don't want to minimize how important I, as the head of Brady, think getting the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act through was, and it, it provided a lot of different things that are super important that I'd love to spend an entire podcast talking about, because yeah. I don't think that people really understand the game changer that that was. And I understand why, because it's hard to live in a society where we can get something like that through, and we can't probably get an assault weapons ban through. It makes no sense. It's it's a whole separate conversation, but it I don't want it to minimize how important and how many lives I think can be saved with what we did pass. It's one piece of it. One piece. Yeah, right. Totally. Well, is there anything like solutions wise that you think that we maybe didn't talk about today that people can like have their eye on as far as Pieces of hope, I guess, on this issue. I, I think this is an issue that is very disheartening for so many. It doesn't feel like there's much movement. I feel like this conversation has made me see that there's so much movement, especially again, because obviously these solutions that we've talked about are kind of on the individuals a lot on like the, the gun owners, but there's this kind of bigger monster at the top that like needs to be tackled. And the reason we can't get legislation through Congress or whatever is because of that, the NRA that's controlling then, you know, blocking that legislation. So knowing that there's people chipping away at that is amazing. But 
just curious if there's anything that, you know, people can look to as far as more solutions that we haven't like fully talked about today that you think need to be highlighted. Well, I just say that the most important thing for your listeners to do is get informed and get engaged because there are things that can be done. What I always like to talk about is think about your sphere of influence and your sphere of control. I have conversations with my daughters and my 80 plus year old mother about this all the time, because if you just watch the news all day, it's easily easy to get super disheartened about the state of our world and about your ability to fix anything. But I assure you on our cause, there are a lot of ways to get involved. First, go to bradyunited.org. We have chapters. We have a youth-led initiative team enough. These guys are rock stars and are just every day growing the number and really making a difference, talking to legislators, getting involved in schools, getting involved civically, locally in communities around this issue. We need help with state legislatures, even with local legislatures, where we're making a lot of progress, but we want to make even more. If you're in a state that is feels hostile to taking that kind of action, and Family Fire is for you, because at the end of the day, being able to talk to one another in our community, in our neighborhoods, at our schools, at our civic associations, with police departments around this campaign, and we have whole toolkits on our website to be able to do that. And you'll find a community really ready, willing, and able to meet you where you are. In other words, some people are really comfortable getting involved in the political side, and some people want nothing to do with that. I assure you there's something for everyone, though, to do to make a difference. And I would just say it is on all of us. Unfortunately, I don't want to end on a negative note, but I just read a study by a very reputable organization that three years from now, every American will be directly or indirectly impacted by gun violence. They will either be a victim or they will know someone who is. That's the trajectory we're on. Every single person in America has a role in fixing that and indeed demanding that for the kind of world we all want to live in. Because we know we can't live this way, can't go on and on and on. It just won't be a place any of us want to live in. So all of us, especially younger folks, can really make a difference here and hold each other accountable for the change we want. Absolutely. Well, for closing notes, where can people find out more information about Brady, social, plug all the things, tell us all the deets. Very good. Well, I have to, of course, because I I don't always look at my own social. I'm just (laughs) checking very, very quickly to find out to make sure I get my own handle right. This is kind of an embarrassing admission against interest. But if you want to see what I'm saying about gun violence, go to at Chris, K-R-I-S-B underscore Brown. And of course, go to at Brady Buzz to find out more information for what Brady is saying every day about the issue. Go to our website. It's full of incredible information about all of the different things that we're doing at the local, state, and federal level in the courts within Family Fire, etc. That's BradyUnited.org. You can also find us on Insta. And yeah, I think I think I've covered it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And this is such an amazing conversation. We really look forward to all of our listeners tuning in and having you back on because 
like we noticed in this interview, there are a lot of rabbit holes that require, (laughs) you know, a lot of exploring. So we look forward to, of course, continuing the conversation at a later date. Me too. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate what you guys are doing and your approach to it. Thank you.